0: entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business again for another week. And uh, you know what? We're cranking through the episodes, I have to say. When I first started doing this podcast about 18 months ago, couldn't have dreamed we'd get to you know into the hundreds, hundreds of episodes. But uh, it's been such an amazing journey, and as I often say on the podcast, it's a privilege to be able to have conversations with so many successful, fun, and interesting people. So today is a is a is a cool one for me because I'm connecting with I'm going to say my alma mater, which effectively means um, somewhere where I studied, where I had a huge amount of growth. Uh, And that is the business school INSEAD. Now, for those who don't know about INSEAD, INSEAD is certainly one of the world's top business schools. Um, They've got campuses around the world. Uh, I studied at a fantastic place called Fontainebleau, which is uh, near Paris, uh, about an hour and a half, two hours from Paris, I believe. And um, I went and did one of their executive education programs probably a decade ago now. And it was so affirming for me because it's when you go to these sort of things, it's different to university. University is, is somewhat academic at times. Certainly when I went and did my marketing and my business degree. Whereas if you go to somewhere like INSEAD, they have practical examples of what's happening in the real world. It's very progressive. It's very research led, but at the same time they'll bring in experts who have been at the coalface in business and, And I had about six weeks in total at INSEAD, um, very intense live-in weeks, and uh, it was game-changing for me, certainly as I progressed through my corporate career and into my private equity career as well. So I'm absolutely delighted to have on Scale Up Your Business today, Dr. Samir Hasija, who is the incoming Dean of Executive Education and a Professor of Technology and Operations Management at INSEAD. So his latest research, which we're going to be talking today, talking about today, very very prevalent to the world we're in today, is what happens to the economics of business models in the wake of things like new technologies, things like you know artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, blockchain, but also just the way the world is changing. So what we're going to be discussing today is a book that he has recently written, um, which is called the Phoenix Encounter Method lead your business like it's on fire now um samir has co-authored this book and what it's really about is what you know how when things are starting to kind of get ripped apart and you've got kind of the wreckage of companies littered everywhere what's the best way to prepare for that and what samir and his authors talk about is not necessarily about safety advising safety the method of leadership that's required when things are changing so disruptively around you is you have to imagine burning your business to the ground, throwing yourself into a firestorm of change, as they say, because it's that level of upheaval and chaos, that that level of crisis, which can be used to the organization's advantage. So, you know, why is it called the phoenix? Because you can then rise up like the phoenix from the ashes, from the flame, stronger, and more powerful than ever. Okay, so anyone who's got a business right now that's not performing very well or is struggling in plateau, then I suggest this is going to be a good episode to listen to. And you know, the outcome, the practical part of this is you know, go away and try and disrupt your business. Try and think about what you could be doing differently in the wake of change because it's things like that that allow you to pivot. It's things like that that can spark growth again. Okay, so that's it. Long intro, but as I said, I'm absolutely delighted. You know, business business schools can get their their fair share of praise and criticism, but I can thoroughly recommend INSEAD, certainly one of the top business schools in the world, and as I said before, transformative in terms of my education, my skill set, my mindset in terms of what I'm doing now. Alrighty, so that's it. Today's episode, welcome to Scale Up Your Business Dr. Samir Hasija. Hi, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business, another week in. And I'm delighted to have with me today Samir Hasija. Now, Samir is the incoming Dean of Executive Education and a Professor of Technology and Operations Management. At INSIAD, and the reason I was so keen to have Samir on today is I've actually done a very brief stint of study at INSIAD, so I know how amazing the place is. So, listen, welcome to the show, Samir.
1: Nick, thanks a lot uh, for having me, and it's great to be talking to uh, a, a, an alumni of uh, an alumnus of INSIAD.
0: It was a decade ago, and I spent three weeks on campus in Fontainebleau. And, do you know, what? I've got lots of really fond memories of what I learned there, and some of the things have stayed with me. But one of the things I loved the most was that in Fontainebleau, for everyone listening, I've got a global audience, and they probably don't even know where the hell that is. Uh, but it's not too far away from Paris in France. And uh, I was there, and on the weekends, um, we all used to go off and find these tiny little villages and have these amazing lunches with far too much red wine. <laughs> and, that, and you know what? That was amazing. But uh, but you're based um, in the Singapore campus, is that right?
1: That's that's right. So INSEAD is we like to position ourselves as a global school, with campuses in Singapore, in Fontainebleau, which is the original campus. We now have one in Abu Dhabi, and believe it or not, we started one very recently in San Francisco. So um, oh, fantastic. So that's that's our global footprint right now. And again, if we, if we want to be the business school of the world, which is what we want to be and are, then we have to be present everywhere. And that's what we're yeah. trying to do.
0: And that was one of the reasons. So I had the choice. I was working in, this is a sort of pre my corporate, uh, private equity um, experience. I was working in the world of corporate and I had the choice. I was the CMO of a company. And I had the choice of choosing between any of the business schools, really. You know, it's going to be paid for by the company. And the thing that attracted me to INSEAD was um, the global perspective and the fact that even when I went there for the three weeks, uh, the the, the, um, industries um, that were in the room with me, the um, cultures, the different nationalities, uh, I don't think I was, I think I was the only Australian. (laughs) There was people there from China, different languages. It was amazing just to have, you know, 30 or 40 people in that experience.
1: I'm glad you said that, Nick, and, and it's really good, great to hear. I'll be very honest with you. Um, I only realized the importance and value of all of this after I joined INSEAD, after they hired me and I decided to go. That's when I realized, wow, <laughs> this is a completely different world and, and I quite enjoy it. So I was, I've been here since 2008 and, and it's, it's been a complete fun ride so far.
0: Great. Well, that was going to be my first question to you, Samir, was kind of, you know, what's your pathway to this? But obviously, you just said you've been with INSEAD um, for quite some time. Um, just give us a sense of your story. So kind of what your background is previously and how you've, how you've ended up, um, you know, about to become the Dean of Executive Education um, at this amazing place. So, Nick, very, um, you know, to me,
1: being at INSEAD was a series of coincidences. And, and I'll be very, uh, you know, short in this. I was an engineering student in India, went to one of the the top engineering schools there. They're known as the IITs, the Indian Institute of Technologies. And I don't know, out of the blue, uh, I just read a book and a fantastic book. It's called The Goal. It's like this age old book that, you know, written like, I don't know, two or three decades ago.
0: We might put that in the show notes as well with, your, with yeah. your book, which we're going to talk about, but I don't think I've read yes. that. And I, and I love to read books.
1: <laughs> cool. And that book just suddenly had a, a, a switch in, in my career path where I was majoring in ocean engineering and naval architecture. And I suddenly decided to move towards business school and, and, and pick up a PhD in technology and operations management. And because I was so fascinated by one of the characters in the book, uh, who's really into this, this kind of field. And I never looked back. And you know, did my PhD at uh, the University of Rochester, which is at the Simon Business School. And once I graduated, uh, Insiad was uh, curious enough to experiment with a person like me, and so they brought me on board and and gave me complete freedom to do whatever I wanted to do, uh, and 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 that allowed me to 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 work in traditional fields like operations management, and slowly, slowly venture into non-traditional fields uh, such as. You know, technology, innovation, disruption. I mean, they're not trad- they are traditional to, to other areas like strategy, but they're not traditional to the, the, the department, the academic house that I sit in, which is operations management. And I found that combining the two, combining technology, combining disruptive thinking, combining you know what the future of business and management will look like with operations and technology, which is the, the core, the center of execution, leads to a, a very fresh perspective on these things. And INSEAD gave me the license to do whatever it is I was doing. And, 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 and I've been very grateful and, and fortunate to be able to do that.
0: Wow. you know, And this the book other... that
1: we are writing is an yeah. outcome of, of, of that pretty much.
0: Well, this is an area that um, is, so my background was sales and marketing predominantly, um, and, and to some extent, product product development, but but more traditional as opposed to the technology side of that. So actually getting into some of this today is going to be fascinating. But what we want to talk about is you've got a book Um, that's, has it been released yet, Samir, is it coming out?
1: It's going to come out uh, towards the end of this month, October 27th. Uh, that's going to be the global release.
0: Uh, okay. And it's called the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, the Phoenix Encounter Method, Lead Like Your Business is on Fire. That's right. So we're going to talk today. I mean, I want to jump into quite a few topics, but I think it's a topical time anyway, because there's so much change going on. As we record this, um, we are October 2020. Um, I would have loved to have said we're at the end of a global pandemic, but I I hesitate to think that we might still be in the beginning of it. Who knows? Um, But also there's been a lot of change in business and, and the way people work. Um, and different things are starting to become really, really critical for business success. So we want to cover that. I, I definitely want to talk around leadership and your thoughts around leadership and, and particularly an area we were just discussing before we started recording, which is, you know, how are some of the bigger companies going to, going to um, respond to some of the massive disruption that's happening and what is the opportunity and or the risk that um, is there for entrepreneurs and people who are starting and scaling businesses now and in the near future. So lots of good things to get into, but let's get into the book first, if that's okay. So what, first and foremost, what prompted you to write the book? And please give us a, a bit of an insight into kind of the main, the main themes and what it's about. So
1: Nick, you have to believe me when I say that we started writing this book about the phoenix, which is you got to burn down and, and then resurrect yourself, right? before COVID, right? And COVID is, <laughs> yes. is, is and, and it's, it's a completely apt uh, kind of setting for me to talk about this concept because that's what the world is going to go through right now, right? And, and, but we started this before COVID and I'll tell you how it all started. Uh, one of my co-authors, uh, Ian Woodward, he, he directs a, a, a very senior leadership program at INSEAD called AMP, the Advanced Management Program. We have very senior executives that come in through that, mostly C-suite executives. And as a technology guy, he came to me and you know, my other co-author, Paddy, who's kind of a technology and markets and economics kind of guy. And he asked us, he said, you know, if you were to have a conversation about technology and business model innovation with uh, seasoned executives, how would we do that in a classroom environment? And I realized that this is quite an interesting challenge because to a large extent, technology is very factual it's about what it can do and what it cannot do. But a a discussion with the senior executive team, especially when they belong to all sorts of industries and all sorts of geographies, needs to be very conceptual. So the challenge faced with us was, how do we talk about technology and disruption and the future at a conceptual level? And that's when the idea started brewing in, in, in our head. And we realized that, you know, anybody can use technology for the sake of technology. So, if you want to lower your cost, you can lower your cost by automation. I can lower my cost by automation. This is not going to be a game changer. This mm-hmm. is this is very incremental. When technology is combined by fundamentally changing the rules of the game altogether, is when the real aha can come about. And we said, well, how do we have a conversation about changing the rules of the game? And that's when when we started sitting together, we we brainstormed and we said. The only way to do this is to get these executives out of their comfort zone and ask them to imagine a world in which they first imagine how technology and all the other levers, business models, emerging markets, social and demographic change, how all these levers can be put together to imagine a complete destruction of their business. How can they destroy their current business absolutely and utterly? And only then can they start thinking about how to use these very levers to defend themselves against such a possibility. And that's when the, what the real use of technology can be, the aha of technology or the aha of business models or the aha of how can I leverage social and demographical change to create the next version of my business come about short of that we'll always be talking incremental change
0: so how do you get someone how do you get a business leader to that place because you know there's been traditional models you've got the whole things like porter's five forces and different ways of looking at the external macro environment impacts but having been a ceo myself of, of smaller businesses but even so sometimes it's very difficult to kind of create that environment where you can really you know rip the whole thing apart and see the risks in that way so what's what's your advice on that or how do you how do you guide that
1: this has to be a role play, this is a simulation. Okay. And the way we do this is we tell them, you are no longer with your company. You belong to a company and for a lack of better name, we're gonna call it NUCO. And NUCO has unlimited resources. So let's not constraint our thinking with capital or regulatory environments or, or any of those resources. Let's imagine you have unlimited resources in terms of capital technology and regulatory uh, uh, you know levers. How can you design a new business model altogether, which will come in currently, which will destroy your current business completely? And what we do is we make people ideate in teams. So you know we won't just have Nick trying to destroy his business. Nick will team you up with a bunch of other executives who come from a bunch of other industries, of course, in a non-compete manner. So we'll make sure we're not putting people who have <laughs> who have a lot of uh, anyway, insider uh, issues with each other. We'll make sure it's, it's completely uh, uh, non-compete. And we will ask you to create a business model. And of course, what we'll do when we ask you to do that is we'll start giving you stimulus. We'll start giving you information. We'll tell you what blockchains can do. We'll tell you what AI can do. We'll tell you what's happening in the emerging markets. So we'll start giving you tools. We call this firepower. And we will then ask you through this workshop to essentially design a business model that can destroy your current business. What is interesting, Nick, is it doesn't take executives, seasoned executives, too long to figure out an absolute destruction of their current business, because they, they, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody really knows what their vulnerabilities are, and they're able to exploit it. This is quite an emotional experience, of course, but people are able to design some very interesting business models that can completely disrupt them, uh, that can completely disrupt their current business.
0: Yeah, okay. Interesting. Once we do I- that... Are there any, I mean, just, just some examples would be useful here without naming names and everything like that, which I appreciate. But what are some of the, are there anything that, that common themes again that people kind of go to? Or is the stimulus so different that they get in each of these scenarios that it's designed, that it can be all sorts of different things?
1: There are a lot of differences. And, you know, I would say by and large, the, the environment, the, the company that is dealing with, the company that we're talking about the geography in which they're operating determines a lot of the issues of how an attack can be designed. Mm -hmm. But there are common themes. There are common themes where people are realizing that the concept of an ecosystem, the concept of a platform where where multiple organizations and multiple uh, businesses can come together and interact in a way that value gets created because of complementarity coming together. Now, complementarity or You know, companies working together where they have complementary resources is nothing new, but what the world of technology has done is that it's made the the frictions of making different organizations with complementary uh, capabilities coming together uh, go down tremendously. Mm -hmm. So our ability to find somebody that provides me with complementary resources, to contract with them, to work with them, has become tremendously easy. And because of this, an ecosystem can easily be created, which can be quite damning for an existing legacy oriented business, which is operating in somewhat of a, a, a chain system rather than a network kind of a system, so to speak. So that's kind of some of the common th- one one of the common themes that emerges. Of course, the role of emerging technologies, uh, things like AI, things like blockchain, things like robotics, things like IoT. These technologies often get used by the, the new core that people are designing in a way that legacy companies are simply incapable of doing because they're perhaps too siloed, they're not very well coordinated, or they have processes which are simply incapable of leveraging these new technologies. So these are some no, common things that. that
0: do appear. No, I see that. And, and, I, and I work at the at the end of advising technology businesses that ultimately get acquired by some of the larger, slower moving corporates. Um, because they, are, they have the inability to innovate to that level um, because it becomes very insular. Interesting. Okay. And um, what, in terms of kind of, let's, let's talk a little bit more macro again because I think it's interesting. Um, uh, what are some of the trends then that, that we're seeing? Um, one thing I've noticed, I mean, the obvious ones are obviously the pace and speed and, and differentiation of technology, but this idea that um, scale is good, as in collaboration is becoming um, or more of a necessity as opposed to something that you just did to kind of get an incremental gain, are you starting to see those trends become, um, you know, or, or speed up or become more obvious um, in the environment we're in today?
1: I, I think so, and and for 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 the reasons that we always knew, which is the, the economics, the unit economics starts looking so much more uh, interesting as you start seeing these these collaborative networks getting formed, as opposed to everybody trying to do this on their own. Also the, the ability to leverage skills that, as you said, it's, it's not so easy for legacy and traditional businesses to be able to do. So what, we, and, and Nick here's the interesting thing, COVID has also revealed something quite new, which we kind of knew, but COVID sort of confirmed this, that it's not only providing unit economics to look better, these collaborative networks or platforms that are getting formed is also creating a huge amount of resilience that did not previously exist, or even if it existed, it would be very, very costly. I mean, classic example, COVID led to a huge shock in demand and supply. And the winners are the ones that were able to handle this demand and supply shocks, were not the ones who had tons of inventory sitting or a huge slack or redundancy built into their supply chain. That was none of that. The ones that I were, were able to get out of this were the ones who had a technology stack, which was so nimble that they were almost like a switch turned on or off were able to partner with with new companies with new logistics providers with new suppliers with 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 you know completely new kind of businesses that previously were not even in their horizon of partnership i mean in china apple was using food delivery platforms to supply phones to consumers okay you can't suddenly shift your retail end user retail supply chain to a to a, to a company that delivers food overnight. But if you've set yourself up by using a smart infrastructure, APIs, data infrastructure, IoT, et cetera, et cetera, you can do it overnight and we saw it, they did it. Whereas we also saw in Europe, that was a bit of a problem. Some companies were able to, but by and large, Europe was not able to move so fast to be able to overcome the, the, the supply and demand shocks or the constraints that the world had created. Whereas China, because of its, you know, readiness in terms of these technology infrastructure that they had, overnight they were able to do it. So we, we're seeing these trends. These trends have proven to be valuable. And by the way, don't get me wrong, Nick, I'm not saying that Apple will continue to use a food delivery platform to sell its phones. You see, that's the beauty of this 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 platform technology, is you can switch it off over on overnight. Well, you can switch it off overnight as well.
0: So well, look at the key, so- the key point we're talking about here is agility, right? Aren't we? You know, the, the, the fact you can do. it. But you, did you go back a step? You said beforehand around the difference between Europe and China. Is that a is that cultural? Is that the fact that China has? Um, I'm not going to say they're late to the game because <laughs> you know they've been they've been. But there's there seems a point where some of the more traditional processes and systems that might have been built through some of the European companies are just harder to change. And when someone comes in, when they're coming from something which is a bit blank you know, they can actually create something with left, with more simplicity, let's call it.
1: Nick, I call this the biology of business. So this is, it's just nature. So you're absolutely right. I, I wouldn't call it cultural. I would just say okay. this is bi- this is purely biological, where legacy players are going to have lack of agility uh, by, by one simple fact. You see, as legacy players, you see, okay, let me step back. When entrepreneurs are trying to scale up, one of the things that they need to do to scale up is put proper processes in place. Structure, structure is very important to scale up. Well, that very structure, once you've scaled up, is going to be uh, is going to be the shackles on you. Okay. Mm, so what you need, what you need at one point in time to make your business viable and sustainable and grow is the very thing that is going to be a problem later on. Which is why we come up with the phoenix idea, which is that. If you have to reinvent yourself, you need to break those shackles and you need to imagine a complete destruction of your business before you can figure out what is the 2.0 version of your business.
0: I love that. You know what? Well, I haven't heard it said that way because I talk about, you know, the journey um, from startup into scale up. Um, and most of the people that are attracted to scale up your business are looking to exit their business for eight to nine figures or something like that. Um, we're not talking about some of the bigger organizations, but you're right. Um, you go um, from a, a, a period of chaos, let's call it creative chaos, which is actually very important in startup, right? You know, you have to be able to see the problem in a way that other people may not, and then be able to solve that. Then you've got to bring structure. I never really appreciated the fact that you're right—that there's a point where that structure suffocates you.
1: And 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 not because we're not smart, Nick. (laughs) No, no, right? Like it's simply—it's just I call this biology. Like you cannot fight this unless, of course, we reinvent our DNA. And and again, I go back to the the uh, the the analogy, the the metaphor that we use of of the phoenix because to us it is reinventing your dna but you can't surgically reinvent your dna you have to completely destroy yourself and then recreate yourself to 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 figure out what the future will look is like is there any other
0: way around it i mean is there i mean I, i'm going to give you a, just an example for a second um, i i do a lot of ultra running like you know um crazy marathon running and there are mm-hmm. two brands that make watches in this space well there's a lot of brands but there's two main ones garmin which you would have definitely heard of uh, and there's a new brand called Coros, which is based out of America. And the CEO of Coros the other day was talking about how he's being able to disrupt and beat Garmin. And this is with the technology, with the watches. So I've got a couple here. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he said, the reason I can win is because the Garmin ecosystem has had so many things added on top of it over so many years, it's become so complex. And then you've also got the infighting that's happening within Garmin for people competing about all these new features and benefits of their watches. The reason I can win is because I'm, I'm basically building from, from a, a, a blank canvas. And mm. therefore it's easier for me to be able to add things and remove things as opposed to trying to go in there and kind of break the whole thing up to so your kind of Phoenix uh, metaphor.
1: Yeah. I, Nick, it- Exactly, right? And and there could be a way around it. Okay. And, mm. and the way around it is once you are, if you do the Phoenix encounter before the encounter takes place in the real world, which is what we are advocating. Mm-hmm. This is what Paddy likes to say, one of my co-authors on the book. And Paddy says, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Had Garmin imagined the encounter process five years ago, it would be a different story because you can preempt things. So, you know, the, the, the point about the DNA is, yes, once, once you are in a hardcore disruptive battle, it's very difficult. But should you be able to preempt it five, 10 years ahead of time, you can start making small incremental, and this is where, this, is, this sounds kind of contradictory, but it really makes sense. You can start making small incremental changes, including simple things like building pivots and flexibility, even in legacy businesses, that allow you to change direction as and when reality unfolds itself, as opposed to running full steam ahead because you're making money right now. So so our philosophy is to do the encounter before the encounter happens to you. And that is one way to avoid the physical burning of your business, but only burning it in the boardroom and then preemptively uh, investing in things that allow you to avoid an oncoming disruption. A uh, classic example of that that I'd like to give you is, and I don't know the inside story, but think about it, Nick. Why would Google feel the desperate need to create Alphabet? I mean, this is one of the biggest companies in the world. They were doing so well. Why suddenly change the structure and create Alphabet, which does all the funky, innovative, crazy out there stuff and keep the cash cow running the way it's running? And to me, it's a pretty interesting anecdotal uh, you know, sample point of one example of a company that is doing the encounter on themselves before somebody else does it on them.
0: It's similar to, you know, um, when we used to talk about product life cycles and the whole idea that you actually start the, the reinvention of a product when it's at its peak, you know, not, you know, if you think about, it, I remember thinking back to sort of when I studied this and it makes sense, it takes a brave um, leader to to break the machine when it's firing. <laughs> you know, on all cylinders. But I can see that if you're not at least adapting that way, and I suppose doing it more quickly than perhaps um, we used to do it, because we said before about the pace of change, if you're not doing that, you're going to get caught, aren't you? You're going to get Absolutely. caught to a position, which is very hard to go back from. Um, and I would imagine, again, there's some classic examples of this, the big behemoths that have been around for, you know, 50 odd years, all of a sudden, you know, literally closing doors m- super quick. Um, and I had this. I'll give you a very, very quick example. I, I, I went through the transition of print media to digital, and mm-hmm. I was working for the second biggest consumer publishing company in the UK. And there was a magazine I worked on that within three years it went from a million copy sales on newsstand, right per month, mm-hmm. to literally mm-hmm. closing within three years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And that's. I mean, that business. There were four four titles within EMAP consumer media that I worked with that made up half of the company's profits. And two of those closed within five years. Crazy, it's isn't it? But then, it's, it's fascinating. But I remember, just to sort of finish the point, I remember I was, I was on you know, senior, senior leadership. We would never have entertained those conversations. You know, we kind of knew it was coming because you could sort of get a sense that frequency of purchase of magazines was going down and was getting displaced by, by people spending more of their time online, even you know, the sort of early 2000s. But no one was brave enough to say, Let's let's change this until it was late. We did change it. But then obviously by that point in time, you know, there was a lot of value lost.
1: I I, I completely agree. And, Nick, you know, to be fair, when when executives come to our campus and let's say we are in Do and they're coming to our campus and we're doing the Phoenix Encounter with them. And when they're about to leave, they tell us, oh, I'm so excited because I'm going to go and change the, the, the very structure of my organization. And how do you feel, Samir? And I tell them, don't do it. So, what do you mean? I said, don't just go and tell your board that this is what you're gonna do, because they're gonna ask you what the hell were these NCN professors smoking with you. So,
0: and, I love them, and yes. so
1: so my advice to them is to say, go and do the Phoenix encounter with them. Go do it with the board, go do it with your exco, go do it with exco minus one. Do it in your organization, build the burning platform, let them see it, experience it, feel it rather than you shoving it down uh, the organization, you will, you will have too much resistance. Very few organizations can handle that level of uh, innovative change that, that a top-down top kind of system is bringing in. Uh, you you've got to build it organically. So even in the book, we, we, we advocate to run this and, and cascade this at different levels of the organization, all the way from the board down to XCO minus one, two, three, whatever wherever decisions are being made. And the fantastic thing of doing that, Nick, is not only will it build the burning platform and help with the change management, it will also lead to ideas coming from all sorts of directions that perhaps nobody could have thought of, which will then allow you to, to get a much wider set of optionality rather than a narrower set. And, and again, Nick, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that with this wider set, you run with all sorts of crazy ideas. No. No. Once you get your optional set option sets, you have to do a much more detailed analysis and you can bring in the numbers and you can be more quantitative about it and you can do a more serious, you know, five forces, this, that, whatever analysis that you want to do or whatever it is that your company does. But at the very least, make sure that you you do not narrow your option set right at the outset, that you've really gone wide and 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 broad. Uh, before you start thinking about what really the future would be. So we we, we advocate cascading this throughout the organization. Yeah. The stories that have come back to us from executives who have successfully changed, and we share some of, many of those in the book, we had to anonymize them for obvious reasons, but we share many of the original stories in the book. Um, the successful ones were the ones that actually went and did what we recommended, which is they ran encounters within the organization and then let organic change emerge in the organization as opposed to being more top-down.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've had the privilege of being involved in a couple of, um, I suppose, interesting tangents from what you're saying. So, I was involved in the M and A side of some of these. um, Similar, it would be a very different process, and you've definitely made it um, much clearer and and potentially a little bit more dramatic, I think, in terms of what would happen. But I remember I was involved in the acquisition of a business called iStock Photo when I was at Getty Images, and Mm. we bought that business because. First and foremost, we realized that they were disrupting um, the core business and we had the option of, you know, should we try and, in fact, we did both. We created a new business called ThinkStock, which was what we call Mm Microstock. And then we bought the Disruptor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was all a similar thing. We knew that if we didn't do um, one or both of those things, the whole market, which we owned, you know, massive Mm -hmm. monopoly on the market was going to get changed and then we would lose. But it came from a position of understanding that external view, at least having exactly. some insight or a feeling that we need to do something, and the burning platform is there.
1: Exactly, which is the exact opposite of what Blockbuster did when they said no to Netflix. Mm.
0: <laughs> so, I, know, so, I know, I know. I love that. I mean, I use that case study all the time. I, <laughs> right. I I I, 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 actually, I don't want to know who the CEO was at that point in time and what he's doing now. But you know, but I can understand. I can also appreciate it's difficult as well, because. Um, one of the things I say, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some early stage businesses and the opportunities around that in a sec as we, as we go into that. But sometimes, you know, when you when you start a business, you can be, it's easier to be externally focused because that's all you've got. And therefore you mm-hmm. are looking at problems and solutions and and that, that view. Um, it, it, it takes a bit more discipline, I find, not to say this is an excuse to sometimes be able to do that, to go to the 50,000 foot view um, when you've got a business that is already complex and has its own operational challenges, et cetera. And the great CEOs are the ones who can balance both of those things in my mind. Uh,
1: uh, Absolutely. Uh, The, 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 the top leadership, uh, the the top leaders that we see are the, are not the ones who have the 50,000 foot view or the 50 feet view, which is more of the execution view or the five feet view, which is more of the personal. Uh, We actually call it the altitudes of leadership. We say that the top leaders are the ones who can travel between these altitudes mm. seamlessly, uh, yes. depending on the situation. There is a time and place for us being there. There's a time and place for uh, us being at 50,000. There's a time and place for us being at 50. There's a time and place for us being at five feet. And the, the best amongst us, and by the way, this may not be natural. We have to train ourselves. The best amongst us are the ones who are able to seamlessly move up and down the situation. So uh, we've also observed that doing the encounter exposes and trains leaders to operate at different levels Uh, as they design the attack phase of this entire method they have to operate at 50,000 feet there is no way around it but as you start getting into the defense and what should my company be doing you very quickly realize that yes you have to be at 50,000 feet but you also have to start thinking 50 feet because as you design the defense of your organization, you realize that you are no longer unconstrained. You are constrained by resources. You are constrained by your complexities. You are constrained by regulatory uh, rules around you. And so, so your defense has to be more realistic and grounded. So, so during the exercise, executives also have to force themselves to, to, to operate at these different levels. And we find it actually quite, quite fascinating how, mm. how, how, they, how they sort of do this.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine the power of doing that as a leadership team as well, because you're going to see some people I think naturally operate at, at at a level, right? You have your natural place, and then the ability to be able, to, as you said, elevate up and down between them is 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 the is the superpower, really. That's but, right. But That's I always right. look at leadership teams as having the balance of those, I suppose, the empathy and the competence. Um, mm-hmm. To be able to operate as, as a unit. So well, let's let's um let's move into um, some practical stuff now. I think this is this is very powerful, and I love I love the concept of it. I like the simplicity of the concept too. Um, doesn't mean it's easy, but you know it's easy for people to understand. Yeah, um, well. So let's talk about some of the the dynamics of of larger businesses, the challenges they're facing, and the opportunity for some smaller businesses. Most of the people listening to this are, let's say, seven eight figure businesses, sometimes nine figures. They're not the large corporates. But they're they're probably on a growth story um, Mm -hmm. and they're looking to be able to disrupt some of the larger companies. But they also are probably watching out that they don't get disrupted themselves because of the scale and size. So let's just have a a conversation, if we can, around those areas. What are you you seeing out there at the moment, you know, if we look at those different dynamics?
1: See, what what we are seeing is, and, and here, Nick, COVID becomes very, very relevant, right? whether we 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 like it or not what covid has done is it has shaken up the world of business like like never before okay um, maybe it has happened before but you know it's nice to say it's like never before what that means for smaller businesses is to to keep in mind that it is no longer going to be the case that they can sort of float under the radar because legacy companies have had a rude awakening uh, during this period and this period is not over yet. This is going to continue for some time and legacy businesses are forced to reevaluate how they operate. What that means for an entrepreneur or a, a mid-sized company is that legacy businesses are going to start thinking about how to reinvent themselves. The Phoenix method is of course meant to help them do this my message to, to folks who are at the small to medium size entrepreneurial gigs is that my observation is they're usually really in, enamored by their technology, by their business model, and they're, it's, it's their baby, right? And they want to grow it. But this is a good time for them to do some introspection and to see, is their business model actually, will it survive a, a disruptive move by a legacy business? What if the legacy business now turns around and, and COVID will make them turn around and says, you know what, you as an entrepreneur are a threat to me and I'm going to do something about it. Is your business going to survive? And every entrepreneur needs to ask themselves this question because the, 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 the matter of the fact is, is the following. Is the entrepreneur successful because the legacy business is unable to compete with them or is not thinking of competing with them? And quite often it's the latter, right? It's, uh, it's, 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 or perhaps it's even a combination, but COVID will change all of that. So my recommendation to an entrepreneur is think about how a legacy business can completely destroy you if they focus their energy on you, do the encounter, and then find out one, is your business model resilient to that kind of disruption? If not, what do you need to do to make your business model resilient to that kind of disruption? And the answer to these questions will will give you a direction that you need to start thinking very seriously if you want to take your business to the next stage. Short of that, I think you may suddenly be caught by surprise where while you were floating unnoticed by your uh, your old um, legacy competitors, you may suddenly be on their radar now.
0: Can I share with you a story from last night? Mm-hmm. This is this is literally last night. A uh, a client of mine in um, West Coast, US. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not going to obviously. I'm going to try and I'm going to try and tell this story, but it's going to be bloody obvious when I talk about it. Um, a piece of technology that um, aligns with um, one of the capabilities of a large social media platform. Mm-hmm. And if you think about this technology that's been created, it's significantly better than the current um, solution that's been offered by this, this platform. So much so that the client list of this business that I'm advising is eye-wateringly good. You know, top, top brands, top consumer brands, um, really, really powerful and, and a waiting list. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's happened is there's been a, 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 a basically a legal situation that's um, being done straight away um, where, you know, you have to close, close the doors, guys. Um, You've broken the rules, which they can prove they haven't. But what's interesting about the situation is, you know, to your point that the big companies have resources and, Mm -hmm. and even if they're wrong, right. In this situation, Mm -hmm. the the, the ability to fight Mm -hmm. is massively compromised. You see what Mm -hmm. I mean? And so Absolutely. that's a really, again, this was literally like 10, 10 p.m. UK time last night. I was on the, co- on the phone talking about this. So this is, I mean, that, that's one of the obvious, that's an obvious example, isn't it? But there must be other things.
1: The, the, exactly. And, and, and again, like I said, you know, INSEAD has, INSEAD has a very entrepreneurial culture. I mean, you've been here, you've, you've seen that. It's, it's very entrepreneurial and, and, and it's a great thing. And one thing that I've observed with entrepreneurs, to their credit, Is the passion they have for their business but just like processes become a a binding a, a shackle for legacy businesses your passion for your business can become that same binding because because you may be unwilling to abandon it to change it to pivot in a direction that makes more sense simply because you were so enamored with what you were doing so imagine the destruction and verify yourself At least in 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 a thought experiment, that your business model is indeed robust to a counterattack from the legacy business. Because if it is not, uh, this can be uh, this can be quite quite chaotic for an
0: entrepreneur, and so much wasted energy. um, You know, if you think about it, because because you can put so much of your, as you said, your passion, the late the late nights, all the things that the stress that entrepreneurs take on, and then all of a sudden, you know, one one swift maneuver that wasn't thought through could totally just change everything all that all that work so now i get Absolutely. it interesting and what about and, and, okay sorry you go, go ahead. you go
1: I, and i no, i was just saying that what is very interesting is that when when i've seen entrepreneurs do this exercise uh they get a lot of emotional um uh roller coaster up and down when they do this because the the, the destruction part is is not easy for them to to go through but it's quite valuable
0: Mm, I can see because their psychology at that point in their um, in their business growth cycle is not going to be thinking this back to that product um, example I made before. Okay, and so let's let's just um, uh, talk then about, um, I I suppose, the key tenants, you've talked about the actual model, the method, how it works. But um, are there any are there any sort of key components to this? So if someone was just listening to this, and they want to know a little bit more, um, what's what's the structure? What's the process of how it works?
1: So, uh, actually, uh, the the process is very important, Nick, Uh, and the reason the process is very important is because if, if we don't do it systematically, we would not be able to break blinkered thinking. And let me explain what I mean by that is, okay. you see, we will have a response. If I start talking about how I can destroy your business. It is not unnatural response to say, yeah, but you know, nah, that really can't happen. You know, five years ago, somebody came and tried. Yeah, but now my business is a bit different. You, you see where I'm going with this? Yes, I can. So my, 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 my customers still like to hold the steering of the car, right? Like they, they like to hold the steering. So what are you talking about autonomous vehicles, right? Or I like <laughs> to hold the steering of the cars. Or wh- Why would people rent out their apartment to strangers that they don't know? Right. Like who would ever do that? Like, that's just strange. It's just so weird, you know? So these responses are the core. And and should we have these responses, this entire process will fall, fall flat. So we need a structure. We need to separate ideation from analysis. We need to have a, a scan, a very wide scan, a very panoramic scan of what's happening in the world. What is happening in industries which are completely different than yours. What is happening in geographies which you have never operated in and don't even foresee yourself operating in you need to do these things to open up the mind to to create stimulus so as you design the attack which is really really important you are unhinged Mm. that you are not boxed in because if you design an attack where you know you are one of the big four consulting firms and you design an attack that another big four consulting firm comes and takes your client list okay, interesting, fine, but you didn't really do anything here, right? So, but if you design an attack, you know, you, you, you are in the business of audit and taxation and you design an attack where, you know, the government of Singapore comes up with a software and by the way, it does have one. You know how I do my taxes in Singapore? I don't. I get an SMS on my phone that says your taxes have been done. Go online and check it. That's how I do my, my taxes. And I go online to the portal, the government tax portal, and I check that they're okay. And, and most people are like me. We, we would not have very complicated taxes that we would need to hire somebody. What I'm trying to say is, you know, if you're an audit and taxation business and, and your, your, your wild competitor may just be Alexa, where somebody just says, hey, Alexa, can you file my taxes for this year? And by the way, um, you can use my email because it's connected to you and I have all the documents there. For example, right. So again, I'm I'm being a bit more uh, superficial here, but you get the point I'm trying to make, right? So the I process do, yeah. requires the process requires to break blinkered thinking. So we lay out the process step by step, but the key elements of this process is separate idea from analysis. Don't block the ideas just because they don't make sense right now to you. Let it you know cogitate a little bit, and scan really really wide. Uh, and, and try and use that as stimulus to design these things. Do the attack first, create lots of options, like a double diamond, create lots of options, then converge into one final attack. And then when you defend, again, scan, think about not only new things, but also traditional things. What does MA mean? What does restructuring mean? Perhaps a good defense is to simply sell some business out. Right? Don't abandon those old traditional way of doing business just because you have some new toys like AI and blockchain you know, no, you don't it. abandon, right? So, so we lay out this structure and, and we find that by keeping to the structure, we are able to overcome some of these psychological biases. And hence the outcome is more robust and more promising. If we don't stick to the structure, then the outcome is a hit or a miss.
0: Yeah, no, because you're, you're fighting, um, you know, people's subjectivity, you know, and as you said beforehand, you know, if blink of thinking, which becomes based more on opinion, um is is founded with nothing really around that other than kind of you know if you give back to your blockbuster example you know who, who's gonna who's gonna want to just download something and sit at home and not have the experience of going to a video store <laughs> Absolutely. someone would have said that right you know and, you know, they, and then so, you know and then so and if they have the loudest voice in the room or the best track record or the boast rapport and you know whatever else is, is is landing then they're gonna have a heap of personal power aren't they and then that may end up being the decision There you go. There you
1: go. So, and again, you know, we are humans. We all have biases and you cannot get out of biases unless you have a structured process to help you break those biases, right? So so we know enough from psychology theory that having a proper process helps, I can't say eliminate, but at least attenuate uh, biases. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to attenuate the impact of biased thinking
0: that's great well listen um i'm gonna finish with one thing today um so you've been very um generous with your time uh samir but for everyone who kind of wants to look this book up it's called again the phoenix encounter method lead like your business is on fire i love that i love that byline <laughs> particularly because we've <laughs> unpacked it today um so i recommend that you have a look at that and even if you're a smaller business it a smaller or medium business um, have, back to, have a think back to my example of my client overnight who didn't see that legal case coming simply because he, he upset the wrong you know, 50,000 50, um, kilogram gorilla <laughs> without naming names. And uh, it's uh, ending up being a bit of a painful experience for them. Um, so what I want to finish with um, today, Samir, is, is just going back to INSEAD for a second. Because one of the things I appreciate about, um, about the school is the fact that it's always looking, as we said, globally and externally, and it has various perspectives. What are, what are some of the key perspectives that you're looking at now as we go through pandemic and we're looking at the kind of the, the future over the next few years? Are there some themes that are just jumping out that are kind of across the whole of INSEAD and then everyone's kind of talking about and then obviously building curriculum and building education around it?
1: Yeah, uh, Nick, two things. The first is um, the content. We are a very serious uh, research-based business school. Uh, And we're not the only one, of course. There are many peer schools that we have. But there are two prime focuses of INSEAD, knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination. And there are many other training institutes which are mostly knowledge dissemination, like the consulting firms of the world, so on and so forth. There isn't knowledge creation there. There's a lot of knowledge dissemination. But we are research-based, which means we are cutting edge one of the things that we are noticing is and we want to do this is we want to double down on this we want to make sure that when executives come into our uh, in our into our corridors when we are having a conversation with them we are speaking to them at the frontier of what we understand about businesses and what the future is going to look at so so that's the that's the part where the knowledge creation becomes very very useful where we will rigorously analyze understand what are some of the causal mechanisms that are, that are responsible for changing the landscape of business and have that conversation with executives to then help them figure out what is it that they need to do for their own business and their own personal growth going forward. So we want to double down on, on, on the two arms that we have, the knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination. And again, they're so complementary. To me, this is the classic case of one plus one is bigger than two. And, and that's something that we are noticing our partners, our clients, our customers, our executives who interact with us, they absolutely like this and they want more of this. They are hungry mm-hmm. to hear about the cutting edge. They don't want to hear about what is well understood and well, well known. That's one. The second is the medium of delivery, where primarily as a traditional, as any business school, we have relied on a face-to-face interaction an interaction that involves people to come onto our campuses, experience our campus, have those dialogues and conversations with us, and then go back, re-energized into their organizations, and then actually make magic happen. In today's reality, we realize that as a global business school who wants to have a global footprint, and independent of COVID, we got to make sure that we are we are not constrained by physical co-location. That, of course, we leverage physical co-location to the extent we can, but we leverage all sorts of technologies, whether it's virtual reality, whether it's uh, you know online uh, synchronous technologies of, of communication, asynchronous technologies of interaction, whatever it is to put all of this together to create a holistic learning experience that can be at the end of the day hopefully even tailored to an individual as opposed to tailored to a company or an organization, which is what most business education currently does. So these are the two things that we are uh, doubling down on as a business school. Why? Because these are something that our uh, partners, our corporate partners, our our executives who interact with us really want to talk about. They want to talk about the future. They want to talk about technologies, transformation, disruption, changing market uh, landscape. And what does it mean to the changing leadership styles? What does it mean to the changing personal development uh, goals that people should have? But they don't want to talk about the back. The 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 hindsight they they're forward looking, and the medium. Those are the two things.
0: Yeah, and I, and I take it that that's um that sort of front forward view, if you want to call it that, is 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 much closer than it used to be. I mean, I remember when I was in the corporate world, we used to have these things called five year plans which now have turned into annual plans and 90 day cadence. And you know, this idea that you know your what you were trying to achieve in 5 years is just so I mean, everything's going to change so much now that it's just ridiculous. It's just, it's not even worth you might have as a division, but you wouldn't have it as anything more more strategic than that.
1: And Nick, that's you you're absolutely right. So in, in you know, when I speak to an executive, I say, "Listen, I'm not going to fish for you. I have to teach you how to fish." So I can't tell you what the 5 year plan is going to be, but I have to tell you how to find your one-year plan, your nine-month plan, how to be on top of the game all the time rather than uh, rather than playing catch-up, right? And and mm. that's the role that I think we play as a knowledge partner is to help our knowledge our, our partners, our executives, to be ahead of the curve as opposed to trying to play catch-up, right? And and again, I say this with all humility because it's not like an easy thing to do. It's a, it's a huge challenge and, and, and it's easier said than done, but it's a great target to have. Uh, And that's the golden target that I think we aspire towards. Right.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Well, listen, um, Samir, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I knew our conversation was going to be fun. (laughs) We covered quite a lot there.
1: Absolutely. Pleasure was all mine
0: yeah fantastic okay well so as i said beforehand um uh, have a look at the book the phoenix encounter method and last question for you where can people find you samir if they want to kind of get in touch or follow your work uh
1: very easy uh nick uh first of all surprisingly i haven't yet found another person with the exact same combination of first and last name so i'm one of the easiest persons to find <laughs> online That <laughs> the minute you put samir Hasija, you'll find my entire uh my entire contact details. I'm fairly responsive uh, on emails, uh, but the the best way to connect and the easiest nowadays is LinkedIn. So just search me on LinkedIn, connect with me. I have an open connection policy there. I I like to connect and speak with people, but you can also find me on the INSEAD website uh, and you can send me an email. And my website is also quite easy. It's just www.samirhasija.com uh that is so easy
0: you try looking up nick bradley you've got people who own racehorses you've got a professional (laughs) golfer uh i think i think my sort of gmail was nick bradley twenty (laughs) eight (laughs) thousand and fourteen. but uh yeah all the fun okay well listen thanks samir for coming on the show and and just want to wish you the best of luck as i said you're about to become the dean of executive education as i said from the outset that's where i Um, managed to get my experience at INSEAD and it was very much um, an amazing thing so thanks again and uh, yeah it's great having you as a guest on the show.
1: Thank you Nick and thank you for having me and it was a pleasure talking to you.